Father in heaven, we thank you so much for camp meeting and a time to be together, to love you, to love one another, to come to understand your character better and your plan for us. May we walk away from this session and especially tomorrow's follow-up to this with a renewed dedication and enthusiasm for your will, for your blueprint, for your plan for us in this area of education and understanding our children and the role that you have for our families to play in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. I should mention, by the way, as a, as a business item, the title of this session in the, um, in the program is correct, but the title in the seminar schedule, it says Media School and the Attack on the Family. This session you've come to is just schooled, the deliberate agenda to destroy individuality and so on and so forth. So you got it? All right, let's get into it. I want to take you back to an important couple of years in Adventist history, and that is 1843 to 1844. Now, you know, there was something else happening at this time. In addition to the great Second Advent Awakening and the, 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 the time where the cleansing of the sanctuary began on October 22 of 1844, as prophesied in Daniel 8, verse 14. So God's movement is at its, its climax at that point, coming up to the very last days of Earth's history. You know what else happened at this very same time? Horace Mann visited the nation of Prussia. The kingdom of Prussia at the time was developing some famous, world-famous educational methods, which later became known as Prussian education. Horace Mann was an American living in Massachusetts, and he said, we want to learn what they're doing so we can pattern a public school system in America after the Prussian model. So he came back in 1844 and issued his seventh annual report to the Boston, Massachusetts School Committee. Now, the important factor here is Prussian education was a certain type of education that we're going to be looking at in a second. You might say, well, this might sound good, you know, having an education system in America. You have to understand the type of education that they were doing there. Somebody in the back knows where I'm going with that, but we'll clue the rest of you in in a moment. So far, what we've seen is 1844 was an important year in God's movement and in the movement to bring public schooling to America. Why don't you share another couple of factoids before we continue with the history. This man on the screen is Wilhelm Wundt, good German name from the Prussian schooling philosophy. He's known as the prophet of modern schooling. That's what historians call him. So this is another of count, the, the, a number of counterfeits that you're going to see in two parallel stories going side by side. 1844, something good happening, something not so good. The prophet of modern schooling, take a look at this, wrote 53,000 pages over his 70-year career, approximately, from 1853 to 1920. So we have a prophetic message with many, many pages being written. I think it's like 200,000. They also have the prophet of modern schooling during almost the exact same time period. Isn't that interesting? Now, speaking of counterfeits, here's a third example before we really get into it. Just as a matter of introduction, take a look at this quote, and then I'll tell you who it's by. Every teacher should realize he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order. The teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. So modern schooling, worldly schooling, public schooling, said John Dewey, the most important single thinker in the formation of universal public schooling. He said, the teacher is not merely there to teach academics. No, he is ushering in the true kingdom of God. And he is the true prophet of God. So in the 19th century, have you noticed 
We had a true movement of bringing about, ushering in the true kingdom of God and a counterfeit taking place. We had 1844, an important date for the Advent movement, also an important date for this counter to the Advent movement. And then we also saw a counterfeit prophet, if you will. I think the devil is up to something, knowing that God's people are on the march. 1844 and thereafter, there's a counterfeit in our midst. Now, of course, normally we don't think of school in these insidious, nefarious terms. Like, what do you mean? Counterfeit isn't the advent of modern education, a wonderful thing in the public school system of our time. It has educated so many people. And certainly it has done some good. And most of the people involved with the system today are not a part of the deliberate agenda to reduce individuality and destroy independent, in, independence and independent thinking and intelligence and to re-engineer society. Yes, there is a plot and you will see what that is. But I want to say out of the gates, we're not trying to go after any any human beings, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against the principalities and powers of darkness. So most parents in our land, they send their kids off on the bus at age five. They send them off into the hands of caregivers in the school with the best of intentions, perhaps a bit of naivety, thinking that this thing is acceptable and, and okay, but this, is not, this session is not meant to be an attack or a slam on any people who are a part of that system or participate in the public school system. Nor is it even these, these guys on the screen you're going to hear from. You've heard from a few of them. They are the founders of our system that we have. I want them to speak for themselves so we can hear what this system of modern schooling is all about. But the most important thing we have to realize is, as it says in messages to young people, it is the powers of darkness that strive to gain control of the human mind. So that's the agenda we're exposing today. Take a look at this statement, though. It says in Mind, Character, and Personality, now, as never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. Now, you might have come into this session wondering, oh, I'll, I'll learn a little bit about schooling and an education, and this, this may be something of interest, and, but it's probably not all that important to every single person. Uh-uh. This is a huge life or death salvational issue because the way that children are raised and trained and educated, the way that their mind and character is formed is going to determine their destiny, right? And each one of us, we're undergoing an education all the time. Now, how about this? I want to show you a picture from 1985. Scott Ritzema, four years old, with a little brother there saying goodbye to my first day of school. Now, I actually was age three when I first started going to school. And when I was three years old, I, had, I was put in preschool and then headed off to the public school there, Brookside School in Grand Rapids, Michigan at age four. And interestingly, I never really took to the whole school thing. So I, perhaps it's fitting that I'm doing this seminar, questioning school as we commonly know it. Because uh, my mom famously noted me as the, the third child of four. The first two were scholars of the highest order. And then the third one, never me, was never interested in reading or anything academic. In fact, she caught me reading one time. There's a picture when I was, uh, I don't know, nine or ten or so. Uh, and and, and she, she, she said, I'm going to take a picture of it because it's so rare. She quotes me there as saying, I hate reading. So why share this? Well, it's a part of my experience in my journey. I ended up becoming a teacher. I'll share more about that with you. But I, I, I stopped teaching just a couple of years ago at age 33. So basically from age three till age 33, I kind of lived in school. I, it's just kind of where my life was, right? Nine to three or whatever, eight to three. 
five days a week, most of the year, from age three to age 33. So you almost get blinders when you're that close to it. It's like, what is this thing that I'm a part of? I've, the last couple of years, I've been rethinking and studying through more of that history. But as I look back on my own experience, I figured out, this is just kind of fun, the game of school. The game of school. Because my older siblings were getting A's, and I had to, you know, keep my parents happy and to get the scholarships, and right? It's about, you know, getting the grades so you can make, make, a, make money on that to, to get scholarships for college. But I figured out you really don't have to learn in the system that I was a part of in order to achieve good grades and GPAs. So here was the game of school. Step one, figure out how the teacher calculates the final grade and work proportionately within those categories, and of course, do not apply effort outside of those categories. These were my several rules, seven, six rules or so, for how to do school. And if there's any kids, this is, I'm not recommending this, okay? This is just what I did, and, uh, it, it, and, and I look back and I look at kind of how, how silly this was. Figure out which tasks in the class earn points, and only do those tasks which earn points. No kidding, right? To assure full credit on assigned tasks, submit exactly what the teacher is looking for, and when in doubt, ask her, don't try to be creative or independent or go outside the boundaries of the assigned task. You work exactly as it has been required of you. Also, to assure full credit, be sure to do the tasks a little better than most other students. As long as you're beating most of your peers, you'll get good grades almost all the time. There's a competitive element in that, isn't there? I, I'm not sure that's a healthy thing. In fact, I'm certain that it's not, having read in the spirit of prophecy on that. And the Bible which says, do not compare yourself among each other, and that's not wise. Pay attention to and take notes only on that which the teacher indicates will be on the test. And when in doubt, ask. Is that going to be on the test? Okay, submit it to uh, the garbage bin if not. Number six, submit the test information to short-term memory through minimal study in order to score well on the test. And last of all, calculate your grade as it's going along. Calculate and keep track of all your points down to the second decimal place. And then note how much extra credit you need to do in order to get it up to the next grade and do those simple extra credit. They were always very generous on that. And you can get it up to the next highest. So anyway, after playing this game for a number of years, this is mainly in high school. In middle school, in about eighth grade, I learned your grades don't matter for college. And I started to totally slide, and then my parents came down on me. So then it was just to please the parents thing. But <laughs> when you get to high school, you can play that game all the way through. And I had a goal of getting the 3.5 GPA, because that would earn the honors scholarship at the college that I was planning to go to. And I remember as a senior, I, I had become so accustomed to how this game works that I would know what grade I'm going to get on the test before I took it. And I would study exactly enough to get the needed grade. And I actually planned my GPA to land at 3.500. I did not want 3.502. That would mean I, I put in extra effort. No, I don't want to have any extra effort. I actually did achieve, achieve through this game, 3.500, got the honor scholarship, and that's all history. Now, this is silly, and it's something you can laugh at a little bit, but um, here's something important. Learning is important. Our Savior did not ignore learning or despise education. Education, true education, is good and important to Jesus. He, 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 he thinks it's important. He doesn't despise learning. Yet, interestingly, he chose unlearned fishermen for the work of the gospel because they had not been, what's the next word? Schooled. That's where I got the title from. In the false customs and traditions of the world. 
So we're going to take a look at false education today, true education tomorrow in the, in the chapel. But I want to take you back in the history. I told you we're having a history lesson today. But I, know, I know when I said that initially, a, bu a bunch of people went, oh, no. History was like my least favorite and most boring class. This is going to be torture. Is there any way I can stay? There's no way I can get out of this room with nobody seeing. But I'll tell you something. When you see that history is a story, and it's a story taking us through the great controversy between Christ and Satan and every element of human involvement in this world. We are placing ourselves on one side or the other of that incredible conflict and in, in this, this real drama, this, 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 this narrative that, what, that is weaving all throughout this, the ages of the past. This really matters on a spiritual level. When you see that, it starts to become interesting. I want to take you back to 18... 1787. 1787, the, the Federalist Papers were written. I had to slog through these in my master's program when I was studying political science. And oh, by the way, I did end up going into teaching because at about age 18, I started to find the Bible interesting. And I started to find religion, religious things interesting. And once I started learning from a spiritual angle, I start, it started to awaken the mind instead of just being this robotic routine that I described earlier. Uh, so I, I started to love learning. When I got to college, I studied history. I was studying biblical doctrine just for a hobby, staying up all night sometimes just studying through these things that I won't share right now. But uh, I, I did end up going into history history, political science, economics. And as a part of that, reading the Federalist Papers is really, really hard. I don't know if you've ever done that, but these were written in, a, in 1787 to try to convince the country to adopt the U.S. Constitution. We didn't used to have the Constitution. We were a loose alliance of states under the Confederation, the Articles of Confederation. Well, James Madison and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton got together to write some political treatises of, of, of persuasion. Here's one of them. It may be objected to this that not seven but nine states or two-thirds of the whole number must consent to the most important resolutions. And it may be thence inferred that nine states would always comprehend a majority of the union. But this does not obviate the impropriety of an equal vote between the states of the most unequal dimensions and populousness. Nor is the inference accurate in point of fact, for we can enumerate nine states. Should I, should I stop? Is anybody lost? That was halfway through, like, the sentence there. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds really smart and like, like oh, if, oh, this is, but wait a minute, I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> because our level of, in, of literacy today pales in comparison to back then. You might say, but these guys were so smart. And yeah, they were smart. But you know who their audience was for this? The average New York State farmer. Farmers would go to work through the day, they work with their hands, and then they would study and read and discuss in the evenings theology and political philosophy. They were able to comprehend clearly what these guys were talking about. Now, did you also know, it's not just farmers, when we fast forward to the 1890s, these guys, of course, also founding fathers in the 1700s, but by the 1890s, children in the fifth grade were reading George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's writings as a part of their, their reader, their, their, their fifth grade reader for, for learning reading. Now I want to share with you, remember, fifth graders were reading this. This is George Washington's farewell address. The acceptance of and continuance hitherto in the office to which your suffrages have twice called me have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would have been much earlier in my power, consistently with motives which I was not at liberty to disregard, to return to that retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn. The strength of my inclination to do this previous to the last election had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you. But mature reflection on the then perplexed and critical posture of our foreign affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. 
I won't call on any students in the classroom today to give a concise summary of that because I'm having a hard time understanding, and I've presented this a number of times and read this a number of times. That, by the way, was 45 words per sentence. That was three sentences right there. George Washington was read by fifth graders in the 1890s. Now, we've had a century since then, 126 years since the 1890s. After a century of lots and lots of schooling, all children required to attend school from age five on through, we have had a lot of education since then, or schooling, I should say, as after kids have been schooled full-time for 13 years in our society, after spending about 15,000 hours in school and on schoolwork by the age of 18, and after spending an average of $156,000 per public school child for his 13 years of education today, here is the most recent farewell address that is written at the level of people's understanding. This is not a comment on president's intelligence. The, the, the George W. Bush doesn't write his own speeches. Obama, not, none of them do. But here's his farewell address that was written by a speechwriter for the average intelligence level of America. I have experienced setbacks. There are things I would do differently if given the chance. Yet I have always acted with the best interests of our country in mind. I have followed my conscience and done what I thought was right. You may not agree with some tough decisions I have made, but I hope you can agree that I was willing to make the tough decisions. Do you see the difference? You, it's a black and white contrast here. By the way, I was curious, what grade level, reading level is this? You can plug these in, online readability scores, and it'll give you a bunch of different indices, and it takes the average of them all. Fifth grade reading level. That was what George Washington's reading level was in the 1890s, right? So 126 years later, fifth grade reading level went from here to here, right? And I'm going, how did that happen? Well, by the way, George Washington's today is 19th grade reading level. So what used to be fifth grade reading level is now considered 19th. That would be seven years of post-secondary education, which is exactly what I got. And then I said, I've had enough of that. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So what's happened to us? The initial thought is we haven't been doing enough school. But wait a minute, we've been doing so much. Maybe that's the problem, not the solution. How about these statistics? Between 1940 and 2000, black illiteracy doubled, white illiteracy quadrupled. In 1997, by the way, 1940 was right when ultra-like comprehensive public schooling was finally becoming in place, where there weren't a lot of people slipping through the cracks, and they were virtually having everybody in school from age five. In 1997, nearly 50% of the population was either illiterate or functioning at low levels of literacy, and only 18 to 21% were fully functionally literate. If you think about that statistic right there, that's alarming. Uh, being able to read and digest and comprehend a paragraph, an idea, and understand the main points and, and, and the, uh, the, the flow of the argument. One-fifth of Americans. This is the world US? This is U.S. Yes, very good question. Is, these are U.S. statistics. Between 1975 and 2000, there was a 37% decline in the numbers of those who were scoring above 600 on the SAT. And by the way, the test has become easier each decade as well. 37% decline of, of high achievers. American students who used to rank at the top internationally now rank 23rd out of 65 industrialized countries in math. And in all subjects, the longer American kids are in school, the worse they measure up to other countries. Isn't that amazing? So more of what we're doing makes them fall further and further versus their counterparts in Europe and Asia, etc. 
Finland, who ranks near at the top of all categories, their, their kids spend almost 50% fewer hours in school than American kids. Hmm. The, this is starting to challenge the way I previously thought about school and education. By the way, in the last half of the 20th century, teachers' salaries rose 50%, class sizes dropped 40%, the non-teaching bureaucracy, so administrators and so on, grew 500%, and money spent on public education increased threefold. Kids now spend longer in school than ever before, and young adults are getting college degrees at higher rates than ever before. But only 31% of college-educated Americans can fully comprehend a newspaper story, according to the National Commission on the Future of Higher Education, which, by the way, newspapers are written typically at fifth or sixth, sometimes up to eighth grade reading level. So college, only a third of college-educated Americans can understand and comprehend newspaper stories. Now, when you look at the lower end of this, it gets really scary. 30% of Americans can't find the uh, Pacific Ocean on a blank map. They, they would not be able to point at the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I'm like in shock and horror, and, and this is, you know, you, you pity this situation. Uh, it's it's a, a serious societal breakdown when a full 26% of Americans actually believes the sun revolves around the earth. So, you know, they're like... We're back in the dark ages, folks. And, and these aren't the like, sophisticated conspiracy theorists who are like, believing in a flat earth. You know, these are people who just don't know. They just haven't, they're, just, they're not clued in. So why does this matter on a spiritual level? Christian education says, close reasoners and logical thinkers are few for the reason that false influences have checked the development of the intellect. You see, the devil doesn't want us to be able to think and reason. He doesn't want us to be able to discern truth from error in the Bible and in the popular doctrinal teachings of our time. And of course, we're not saved by our intellect. If you're going, well, I feel dumb because I couldn't understand Washington. Does God not love me? No, of course, he loves every person equally. And, it, and our, our salvation is not going to be based on our test scores, okay? So let's completely remove that from the equation. However, we want to be intelligent in the scriptures, don't we? We want to be able to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. We'll get into that one in a minute. But to understand how we got where we are today, we have to understand Prussian education better. It's the style of public school that came into America, and it's being practiced universally today, pretty much. Let's go all the way back to the time of the Dark Ages, okay? This was a time where the people of Europe were controlled through ignorance. They were kept in the dark, the dark ages, right? Do not allow them to read. Do not allow the Bible to be printed in the common tongue. And so people were kept ignorant of the scriptures, ignorant of truth, ignorant of being able to think and reason and read and become intelligent. Well, something wonderful happened. The Gutenberg printing press uh, totally rained on that parade of social control. Instead of keeping the people ignorant now, people could inform themselves. They could read Luther's writings. They could read the Bible in their own language. This was revolutionary. It led to the Protestant Reformation and a general great enlightening in people in Europe being able to think and question. The powers that be, the priest class that for so long had held a grip on the throat of society, people being under their total control no more in the, in the 1500s after the printing press and the Reformation. Now, of course, the devil doesn't like seeing that kind of thing. People becoming uh, enlightened, he says, no, 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 we're going to stop that. We're going to put a real quick stop to that. So the Jesuit order was formed as the counter-reformation. 
Now, the Jesuits were known for many different things, for their nefarious plots of, you know, uh, sort of worming their way into king's courts and into, you know, various different positions of power. But also what, what the Jesuits were most known for was establishing education systems, establishing schools throughout Europe. And according to Bertrand Russell, the Jesuits provided one sort of education for the boys who were to become ordinary men of the world and another for those who were to become the members of the Jesuit society. Ordinary men and women would be expected to be, so here's their education, you ready for it? The, 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 the European educational system was to teach ordinary people, the masses, to be docile, industrious, punctual, I can buy into industrious and punctual, but docile, notice this, and thoughtless and contented, meaning contented with the lot in life that we've been delivered, the ideas that have been transmitted, not to be thinkers, but to be merely reflectors of other men's thoughts. It says to be thoughtless. Now you might say, what kind of education system is that? Well, it wasn't truly trying to build up people to help them to have true education, which by the way is synonymous with redemption. We'll talk about that tomorrow. True education and redemption are one and the same thing, and the devil doesn't want that. So he wants a counterfeit form of education that will simply indoctrinate, that will simply cause the learner to think, have the illusion that they're receiving an education. But really they're learning to be docile and thoughtless. Now this was imported into the public schools in Prussia, okay? So when we say Prussian education, we're really talking about Jesuit education because the Prussians were just borrowing from this. What you're about to hear is a quote from Johann Gottlieb Fichte. And he was one of the philosophers at the forefront of Prussian education who wanted to help establish a system of universal state schooling in Prussia in an effort to develop a more compliant citizenry. They wanted citizens who would become good, uh, obedient soldiers because they wanted a well-drilled army. They had just been defeated by Napoleon and they said, never again. The Prussians are a proud people. We will have, you remember the Prussian drilling that they're famous for? We will be the most strong empire, the most strong military in the continent of Europe. And also we want to have strong industry. So we need also compliant, non-thinking, obedient cogs in our industrial machine, workers who will be of the type that the Jesuits were trying to produce also. So here's the quote from Fichte himself in his address to the German nation. He said, education should provide the means to, now the rest of the quote, you could fill in with lots of good things, right? Help children to become thinkers, as we said. Help them to come to know Jesus as their savior, to, as their friend. Help them to understand Bible truth. Help them to understand practical things to help them be a blessing to others in their lives. We could go on. Oh, well, we'll do some of that tomorrow. But education should provide the means to do a lot of wonderful things. But according to Prussian education, it should provide the means to destroy free will. He goes on and says, if you want to influence the student at all, you must do more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him. And fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. Destroy free will. Will, an alarming quote, when you look into the history and you go, okay, now I start to understand a little bit more why we ended up what we ended up with 130 years later in Germany. If you didn't know, Prussia was the predecessor to Germany. The Prussian states were then unified in the late 19th century under Otto von Bismarck, ultimately culminating in the 1930s movement of a whole lot of Hitler youth and many people who were happy to follow along with this great leader without questioning what was happening before their very eyes. Very sad thing. Now, of course, Horace Mann thought this was a great thing. 
He went over there. Yeah, all the kids are going to school. And there's some altruism to, he, to also here. Not everybody involved with this is some sort of nefarious, you know, conspirator of evil. Horace Mann, uh, you know, he wanted to copy the Prussian system. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt because he thought it was a good thing. But bottom line, it came to America beginning in the 1840s. And what you, what you read about is a number of quotes that if you didn't know the history of Prussian education coming to America, you might not realize that these quotes were addressing some of the problems inherent in Prussian-style schooling. I want to share these quotes with you in a moment, but just to give you a little bit more of an understanding of how the Prussians did school. Every child was to be essentially raised by the state from age five on up. And they wanted them really, really early, like age five, right? Because that's when they're the most malleable. That's when they can become the most, uh, you know, influenceable. And, and by, by raised, I mean not necessarily they, they would be staying and living at the, at the school. They would still have the, the, the appearance of family and home life. They, did, they, they, didn't, they couldn't get away with totally just abolishing the family. But what they did is they said, well, we'll take the kids in. A, a, a long school year with a few weeks off in the middle and little breaks here and there. Age five, they, they enter into school, have a school day, and it'll be very um, routine ritualistic. When you get particularly to the older students, it, it's large tracks of students being taught by one teacher, and they kind of file in and out in selected periods of, of class. And a lot of what you see coming to the fore in American's version of school is copying after Prussian-style things. And not, the, not, of course, that there's, there's nothing wrong with a schedule, but the idea of it being very impersonal. When I used to teach in the public schools, for example, I would, at many occasions, in a couple of the schools, I would have over 130 students in a day. Over 130. Now, there's no way I'm getting to know any of those kids, right? Unless they come at lunch and we, you know, get to know each other. Jesus had only 12. I had 130. So I don't think I was doing education. I think I must have been doing some sort of Prussian, you know, American uh, copy of that. But also the Prussian model was very um, regulated in terms of the standards and the administrative layers and, and dictating exactly with the teacher training system what ought to be taught so that it was all very uniform, Okay. That's a lot of the direction that America has gone as well in our public schooling system. Now, you might say, okay, this was going on. Prussian-style schooling's coming into America in the latter half of the 1800s. Well, wait a minute. We have a true education system coming in also at the same time, don't we? Through the Advent message and the Advent movement. And so notice this. In Second Manuscript Release 215, Mrs. White wrote, the system of grading, and by the way, this is not like A's, B's, and C's. This is the system of age grading the students. So six-year-olds are with six-year-olds, nine-year-olds are with nine-year-olds, etc. She says that system of grading is a hindrance to the pupil's real progress. Some pupils are slow at first, and the teacher needs to exercise great patience. But these pupils may, after a short time, learn so rapidly as to astonish him. Others may appear to be very brilliant, but time may show that they have blossomed too suddenly. The system of confining children rigidly to grades is not wise. Then A.T. Jones responds, the sooner grades are done away with so that the teacher can get close to the children, the better. Isn't that a radical statement? I like these guys. They think outside that Prussian box, right? Then Mrs. E.G. White says, I know that some better system can be found just as soon as our instructors learn the true principles of education. So Prussian-style schooling did not mimic Jesus Jesus had 12, and a lot of times there were brothers together, right? James and John, Peter and Andrew. 
They were probably different ages. I don't know that these guys were of the exact same age. Peter and Andrew in the same class in Jesus' school. So age integrating, having various different ages in the same context, very good. I was just talking with Jeremy Hall about this actually down in the tent, and he reminded me that in Cognitive Genesis, the study that was done of Adventist schools, smaller schools where there's more uh, involvement of various ages of students do better academically than the schools where you have a more age segregated. I found that to be helpful that the research is bearing out what we read here from inspiration, that the Prussian way of all five-year-olds in classes with just five-year-olds, and I mean, who are they really being raised by then? You know, if you've got giant tracts of students who the teacher can't really be interacting with each one like Jesus did with his 12, they're away from their parents, the teacher is kind of this isolated figure to the students, who are raising the children then? Their peers, right? Their immediate age group. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Here, this is another statement about uh, Prussian education, not, not naming it, of course, but in education page 207, we read here, in the, in, speaking of in the classroom, here little children have to spend from three to five hours a day breathing air that is laden with impurity and perhaps infected with germs of disease. No wonder that in the schoolroom the foundation of lifelong illness is so often laid. Can you imagine a society where little children were in a classroom for three hours a day? This was like, the, she was aghast at the thought, three to five hours a day. Boy, we got some learning to do, I think. Boy, by the way, I like, if this makes you feel uncomfortable, embrace that feeling that might be called conviction, right? That might be called challenging our preconceived notions. And if we're not willing to let the Holy Spirit do that, then we're going to not have that growth mindset of developing and following what the Lord asks I don't have all the answers, certainly, but I do have that quote that really spoke to me. When I was thinking about my little children, we're going to talk more about this tomorrow. When I was thinking about, you know, at what age is school appropriate? Boy, we got to get into, we got to get into that tomorrow. I won't even do that now because we got so much more to cover here. But how about this one? In Christian education, another statement. Oh, first, before I do that, this one about children age three to, or children, little children spending three to five hours a day in a classroom. This is an idea that was handed down by the Prussian system early on, age five, up uh, uh, on up. Early schooling was, a, was very much a Prussian um, invention. Actually, it came down from the Jesuits as well. But here you have another one. So not just the length of the day being up to three to five hours a day for little children, not just age grading the children as we saw. These two Prussian things were spoken out against in the spirit of prophecy, but also this one. Many parents have kept their children at school nearly the year round. The monotony of continual study wearies the mind. So another statement about the, the school year concept coming down from Prussia. Now, this didn't happen overnight in America. You don't just totally transform the way a whole society does education. Back in the old days, in the, in the, in the colonial times, in the early republic in America, the, the schooling most often happened in a pretty informal way. There would often be private tutors. There would often be home education, not called that at the time. They would have a one-room schoolhouse situation at times, but it was usually not, you know, it was never the kind of public school, vast, compulsory, universal system that came in later. That came in in the second half of the 1800s, and by 1890, every state but one had a Horace Mann-inspired, Prussian-modeled, uh, compulsory schooling law on the books. Compulsory meaning required. Parents must um, have their children going to school in the public school system, and there wasn't a whole lot of Christian education at the time, but you know what? You think God knew that was happening? What happened in the 1890s in Adventist history? Who's that man on the screen? Do you know? E.A. Sutherland. 
he was the, um, the, the president or the, the principal, I can't remember what they called him, at Battle Creek. And in the 1890s, he, he had all these students in teacher education programs, and they had this revival, this, this wonderful revival of, we've got a message, we've got a mission, we've got to bring the three angels' messages to the world. And they looked to, to, the, to their, their, their inspiration, their leader, E.A. Sutherland, one of, my, one of my favorite Adventist pioneers, Sutherland, actually had a chance to meet his granddaughter the other day. And, and I, it, was, it was so exciting knowing that we are that close, right, to this history. He said to his students, here's your commission. Go out throughout the land and start church schools. Start situations where we can be raising up and training children for this final work. Because after all, as you know from the history that you've just learned, compulsory schooling, Prussian style, is on the march. God has an answer to that. He's not going to let that just go and have all of our kids in, in these public schools which were becoming increasingly secular in the 20th century, ultimately to get to the point today where they are indoctrinating children with humanistic, evolutionary, secular uh, humanism and, 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 and postmodern moral relativism and, and sexual deviancy and you name it. I mean, there's a whole lot of absolute indoctrinating propaganda mind control going on in the public schools of today. It's horrific. And God knew that was coming. So he said, 1890s, get out there. By the way, 1872 was the year that Ellen White received her first vision and wrote her first testimony on true education and how we should do education differently. What year did I say? 1872. Watch this. Also in 1872, the U.S. government put out a circular of information from the Bureau of Education, and it referred to the, quote, problem of educational schooling. They said people are learning too much. They're not sufficiently Prussianized because Prussian education dumbed down the curriculum, big time. They wanted people to have the rudiments of literacy. They wanted them to have an illusion of education, but mainly they're learning state myths of history, indoctrinating them with ideas that they want to indoctrinate them with. And similarly in America, the, the Prussian schoolists wanted to push this forward. And they said, this is, this is not good. 1872, people who are attending some of these schools in the traditional one-room schoolhouse style. Some of this is sticking around here, and there's too much education happening. They called it the problem of educational schooling, and they said they decried the fact that, quote, inculcating knowledge enables the masses to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances. In other words, they won't be thoughtless and contented, right? Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. We want to be like the Prussian industrial system. We're, you know, we're kind of late on the scene here. The British had their industrial revolution. America's going, we want to be great, have an industrial power, and we've got to have a core of compliant workers. But there's too much knowledge and education happening, and this will perceive, enable the masses to perceive their grievances. 1872, that's moving forward. What else is moving forward? True education testimonies being written in 1872. Now, the coincidences, they're not coincidences. The occurrences continue. We had 1844. We had the prophet of the kingdom of God. We had, we had the 1872. We had, how about this, 1888. There was a movement afoot of some biblically-minded individuals who were willing to question the status quo that, pre that was presented to them. Jones and Wagner, you heard from Jones a minute ago. The 1888 righteousness by faith message was coming out. What else was going on in 1888? 
The report of the Senate Committee on Education said, We believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years manifesting itself among the laboring classes. We gotta give them a good schooling, not a true education. It's going to cause them to be discontent. Now, by the way, as I was studying the history and looking at all these quotes, it just so happened that these quotes landed on dates like 1872, 1888, 1890s was the decade. Uh, it's amazing to watch these two histories parallel each other. Now, even among secular people, th there were folks decrying this. They were saying, this is not okay what's happening with the Prussianization of schools. In fact, the National Education Association, let me skip that because I, what I wanted to do was to show you this. In New York City, in 1914, they were literally rioting over what they called the half rations of education that their children were getting in the Prussianized schools of the public school system in New York City. The most angry people, and we shouldn't you know, promote that like these are the heroes because they were going against Prussian schooling, no, rioting and smashing windows and like stealing their kids from the school and all this you know, violent behavior, not, not good. Although, you know, stealing, that, that's, that, the, the, the smashing of windows and the rioting was not good. It's appropriate for, our ch for our, if your children are being indoctrinated with Darwinistic evolutionary theory, I would say that uh, removing them from that context would be the appropriate thing to do. But anyway, just to, just to clarify that. But they had one, in one instance, they had 5,000 children marching in, uh, in protest against this. And the most common people, the biggest represented group of people were Germans because they knew Prussian education. The German immigrants were here and they said, we've heard of this thing before. Even the Congress, the U.S. Congress Commission on Industrial Re Relations spoke out against this and they said, the domination of men in whose hands the final control of a large part of American industry rests is being rapidly extended to control the education and social services of the nation. So in other words, the big industrial titans, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and these big moneyed elites, they are controlling our education system. And the Congress said, this is not a healthy thing. It actually did happen that the majority of the administrators of the public schools throughout America came out of Columbia Teachers College, which received all of its funding from the Rockefeller Education Board. And so there's a, you know, uh, a pathway there of what's going to be happening down the line. The Congress was blowing the whistle on it. Also, as late as 1954, they were still blowing the whistle on this. They said the power of the individual large foundation is enormous. Its various forms of patronage carry with them elements of thought control, it exerts immense influence on educator, educational processes, and educational institutions. It is capable, speaking of the large industrial foundations, are capable of invisible coercion. In other words, they're controlling the education system. It can materially predetermine the development of social and political concepts, academic opinion, thought leadership, and public opinion. So the Reese Commission, just as well in, in, decades later, said the same thing. The, the, the money that's tied to the control of the public school system is influencing the content and the ideas in the form of education that's taking place. But you don't have to take the words of the Congress. Let's listen to the Rockefeller Education Board. 1913, they were the ones that basically created what we know as today's public school system through their, their um, financial endowments and control of the Columbia Teachers College. In our dreams, they said, we have limitless resources and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. Does this kind of sound like Johann Gottlieb Fichte of Prussian education? The means of education is to destroy, the purpose is to destroy free will. And they say, we want them docile, thoughtless, and contented. 
Here we read again, our, in our dreams, the people will be perfectly docile in our molding hands. And again, this can be nefarious and evil in its purposes. And for other people who are a part of this system, they thought, you know, these unwashed masses, these ignorant people need help, and we're going to help try and lift them up. So not to make everything a, a nefarious plot, but certainly this is not good. Take a look at this. The present educational conventions fade from their minds. So we're going to forget about traditional modes of education in the family, in the community. And unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. So we're going to let these rural folk leave away, leave behind their ways. And they're industrialized or urbanized now, coming into the urban areas, into the factories. And we're going to teach them a new way. And it's, they're going to be perfectly docile in our molding hands. Then we read from the Rockefeller Education Board, the rest of the quote says, we shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have ample supply. Is that not amazing? Now, most teachers that I've ever worked with would say that's what we are trying to do, right? We're trying to help the children become you know, wonderful things to serve their community and their country and their world. And in a Christian setting, I, I taught in public schools, I also taught in the Adventist schools the last couple of years of my career, we're saying we want them to become these things so that they can take the, four, uh, the, the message to the four winds of heaven, the three angels' messages to the four corners of the world. We, we say this is the purpose of, they say no. The purpose of education is just to make them docile. We don't want them to become all these great things. We have a mass of people, just like the Jesuits, two forms of education. One for the masses to teach docility. The others, uh, just as the select elite will become the you know, co-rulers co, uh, of the priest class of Europe, which was what they were trying to establish. Now, in America, they, of course, didn't call it a priest class, but this was an industrial move. This was a move of social engineers and idealists. Take a look at this one from... Um, William Torrey Harris, he helped really to Prussianize American schools in the 1890s. He said 99 students out of 100 are automata, automatons, that would be robots. Now, when I first start reading that quote, any educational people who believe in true education would say, and this is a really bad thing. 99 students are incapable of thinking for themselves. They robotically follow the cultural propaganda program that's given to them through MTV and through the popular culture and through the worldly education system and through the trends and coolness of what's going on in social networking. If we have a robotic youth and citizenry of children, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing, not only for their own souls, but for the future of society. So we would decry this, right? We would go, 99 students out of 100 are automatons, are robots, and this is really bad. We got to do something about it. Nope, he says... They are careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom, and this is not an accident, but the result of substantial education, which he calls it, which scientifically defined, are you ready for the definition of education? According to the most prominent Prussian schoolist in American history, education scientifically defined is the subsumption of the individual. The subsumption means to subsume their individuality into the collective, to alienate them from their individuality as an image bearer of God and to bring them into a robotic hive mind. When I read that, I'm like, now I understand why the system that we have 
fails so much to help children become individual, independent thinking, uh, you know, accomplishing young people. Why we have such a society of followers is because the system was designed to keep them that way. And it's a sad, sad thing. By the way, you can break free from that. Don't be, oh no, well that means since I went through these systems, I'm somehow sort of, you know, in, in a helpless, condemned situation. No, Jesus Christ can give us a new mind, right? We don't want to be conformed to this world. The conformist mindset is not good. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we will be, we will be transformed to a heavenly society. That's who I want to be like. You know, it's not like we have to all be rogue, individual, you know, free-thinking anarchists. No, that's not the case at all. In fact, there are some humanistic, atheistic, free-thinking, hippie type of people that will quote some of these same quotes. And we got to be careful not to go down that road, okay? Because our children need to be, learn to be obedient, right? Okay, and, and so they, they wouldn't want to bring that in. They would, oh, the child just knows right from wrong naturally and let them freely explore all truth for themselves and don't teach them any absolutes. No, 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 no. There's a pit on either side of this balance beam, okay? There's the total thought control and then there's the free-thinking anarchist's mindset. Let's, not, let's, let's go down the path of Jesus wants us to be image bearers of him. That means we have the power to think and to do a power akin to that of the creator so that we will be thinkers, not merely reflectors of other men's thoughts, but always always under the sovereignty and ultimate authority of God and legitimate parental and, and, and authorities in our land. And, and so we always want to have that submission mindset, not I'm going to break free and just, you know, be a God unto myself, okay? I hope we're clear on that. But one more quote, and then i got to show you an amazing finding. Actually, there's a couple of quotes that, that bring this more closely home. So you heard it from two of the founders saying, we want them docile. We don't want them to be all these great things. We want them to be robots. We want their individuality subsumed in the collective. Bertrand Russell was one of the top social engineers of the 20th century, and he said education in a scientific society, what he called the scientific dictatorship, he said we're coming upon a time where people will be so controlled by the culture, by the entertainment industry, and by the education system that we won't even need a dictatorship anymore. We'll have a socially engineered scientific dictatorship, he called it. And so he says education in this kind of society, which, which to him he said is, is coming in the future. I think we're living in it right now. Because he says education in a scientific society may, I think, be best conceived after the analogy of the education provided by the, guess who? The Jesuits. In like manner, the scientific rulers... So he's saying in, the, in what we would call the last days, what he says is in the future, he was writing in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, he says they will have, the scientific rulers will provide one kind of education for ordinary men and women and another for those who are to become holders of scientific power. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be, this is where that quote came from, docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. Of these qualities, probably contentment will be considered to be most important in order to produce it, all the researches of psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and biochemistry will be brought into play. Boy, you could do a whole seminar just on that last statement about psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and biochemistry. We don't have time to get into it all, but here's some more. <laughs> Harold Rugg referred to what they were trying to build as the scientific reconstruction of the social order. We're tossing out traditional ways of agrarian society, and we're bringing in a new social order. And here's how we're going to do it. He says we have to create a new public mind. Notice singular, mind. If you get groupthink going, then you can sway the mind of the mass group group brain, if you will. And he says we do this by creating tens of millions of individual minds and then welding them into a new social mind. And how do they do that? He says through the schools of the world, 
we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of men. So do you think that the state will then also have authority over maybe matters of religious conscience? You see this has prophetic implications, big time. He says, we're going to create a singular, unified societal mind, and we're going we're to inculcate into that mind a new conception of what the role of government ought to be. So instead of protecting life, liberty, and property, no, 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 all the activities of men are going to be postulated here under a need of scientific control. So now we see the likelihood of Revelation 13 coming to fulfillment as you have a society that's been created in this order. Now, they did a study um, on what they call divergent thinking. And divergent thinking means the ability to think creatively outside the box that's presented to you. Okay, So children aged 3 to 5 naturally think independently, on their own. If you've ever hung out with three to five-year-olds, they're some of the most interesting people in the world, right? They're so much fun. Because you think you're taking them that way, and they go, well, what about this? And it's so much creativity. It's great. Need to teach obedience, too, just to, just, to, just to get the balance there. But I just love the creativity, ingenuity, divergentness of a young mind. It's natural within us, because we're image bearers of God. Almost all of them score as creative geniuses. After five years of schooling, though, they retested the same children, and only 32% still had that same ability. What have we done to them? And after five more years of school, only 10% have that same ability that all children had naturally. We're, edu we're, we're schooling it out of them. I was going to say educating it out of them. The, the, the system is, is, is eliminating it from them, creating robots. By age 25, only 2% of the population remain as divergent thinkers. So it went from 98% having that ability to 98% not having that ability. Do you see the dramatic shift that takes place in the years of childhood when you are exposed to worldly schooling, and I would add modern media, which does a whole lot to brainwash them as well and turn, turn them into automatons. I like this statement from Fundamentals of Christian Education. It says, the very atmosphere of these cities, this is during urbanization, is full of poisonous malaria. The freedom, that's literal and figurative, the freedom of individual action is not respected. A man's time is not regarded as really his own. He is expected to do as others do. All this is false education. Now the journey continued as Ellsworth, Edward Ellsworth Ross brought in this concept of social control into vogue. It became very popular in the early 20th century during the progressive era. And what he said was their goal was to collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social needing board. You see, if you're going to create a new social order, if you're going to shape minds and plug them into this welded social mind, you first have to collect them from that place where they are receiving a, a development and an understanding of their traditional ways, their family's ways, their culture, their religion, their patriotism, you name it. If you want to create a new society, you've got to get them away early, right? That's what the Prussians tried to do. So he said the same thing. We're going to collect them from private households. And in fact, they were predicting, and, and we're facing that, that right now. We're going to talk about this more on Tuesday, also in the, in the chapel. But uh, they, they, were, they were saying the, uh, the age of the family is, is gone. It's over. We're seeing the destruction of the family. In fact, they, they said the child passes more and more into the custody of community experts who are qualified to perform the complexer functions of child or of parenthood. You see, when your child becomes five, they become so complex that you'll need the professional state authorities to take it from there. Just please 
we will collect them from your private households and we'll take it from here. This is the way our culture does it. And by the way, isn't it amazing how we don't often think why we do what we do? Like, where did this come from? Why, do, why, do, why does everybody do it the way they do it? Well, there's a history to this, right? And there's a purpose and a motive behind it. Nefarious purposes indeed. Elwood Coverley wrote, in particular, attitude toward control of the child is likely to change. Each year, the child is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. The plea in defense that the child is my child will not be accepted much longer by society. And I saw a little news segment on a cable news station a while back with a state official announcing, and it was like this little propaganda piece, like a little 30-second blip on like an advertisement, and she actually gets on and says to America, she says, we need to get past this idea that children belong to their families and belong to their parents and realize that these are our children and we need to have a collective view of parenting. I'm going, that is, as for me and my house, like we shall serve the Lord, right? I mean, as a father, that kind of thing gets my blood boiling a little. I got to pray and remember our battle is not against flesh and blood. This lady is not the enemy, but she is voicing the ideas of the enemy, right? And so this is on the march. It's happening in our day. It's not just history. Okay, how about this one? And yes, behaviorism. Remember that word? Education says the Department of Education in 1969, so I'm continuing the history here. This continues forward all the way through the 20th century. The Education Department of of the United States said education does not mean teaching people to know what they do not know. It means teaching them to behave as they do not behave. Now, we can, we can agree that, that character development is much more important than the inculcation of knowledge and, and you know, ideas that may have no practical application. But what they're talking about is not character development. They're talking about conformity, social engineering, the new social mind coming forth. And the guy who had the most influence in this movement called behaviorism was the famed, <clears throat> excuse me, B.F. Skinner. He took Prussian thought control to a whole new level. Here's what he said. He said, we can achieve a sort of control under which the controlled nevertheless feel free. So people will think they're free and they live in a free country and they have you know, freedom to choose and freedom to think, but he says we're actually achieving control over their minds. They are doing what they want to do, not what they are forced to do. There is no restraint and no revolt. By a careful cultural design, we control not the final behavior, but the inclination to behave, the motives, the desires, the wishes. Now, that is a deep level of control that the social engineers want to have, not only over the children, but over the whole society. Bertrand Russell said the populace will not even be allowed to know how its convictions were generated. He says, we'll use the film industry. If you've seen Media on the Brain, the seminar I do on media, I've got a quote from him saying, through the cinema, the, the, the youth will come to believe various things about love and honor and a way to make money and the importance of good clothes. And they'll have all of this downloaded into their minds from the evening spent in seeing what Hollywood thinks good for them. He says the churches and schools, all the influence they have combined pales in comparison with the cinema. So he says people will have convictions and beliefs. They'll feel really strongly about things. They'll feel really indignant about something that they see in society, but they have no idea where they got that idea from. It's been given to them somehow through these systems of thought control, but they, they, they will not be able to identify the process. Aldous Huxley, also a part of this movement, wrote, we are in the process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy who have always existed 
and presumably always will exist. By the way, that's an important point. A lot of people will say, well, come on, you know, we live in a free republic, in a democratic society. What are you talking about? Social engineers controlling things. And, you know, each individual, you have freedom to follow God's law and his way in your life. But historically speaking, throughout history, as Aldous Huxley just says, there always is a ruling elite. And they have power and influence to varying its extents but they always exist, okay? So some people have said, well, it's a conspiracy theory to say that there's anybody at the apex of society seeking to dictate and control what goes on in that society. That would be the most naive thing to assume that there is not a powerful elite seeking to arrange things for their benefit and for the benefit of their dream for society. But back to the quote. He says, we're getting to the point where we can get people to love their servitude. So they will think they are free, they will not know how their, their convictions are generated, and they will just love being a part of this mind slavery. Bertrand Russell said, it is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Now that's an amazing statement. He says, we're going to have, we social engineers, when you all think you're in a free society, are going to have more control over the minds of the children and youth particularly than they can, they can have in communist countries, in totalitarian governments. <clears throat> Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Then he says, diet, injections, and injunctions. By the way, did we hear biochemistry? Do you think the health message is important? You think that the diet matters? You're hearing from social engineers here saying, what we do biochemically to the children will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And by the way, Authority is appropriate and good when it is godly authority, okay? So we don't want to take that and be like, you know, I fight authority and always will, right? I mean, we're not going into that method, sorry. <laughs> sorry to quote the popular culture. A few of you knew the, the, the song there. Um, growing up with that stuff, it's like, man, that was my mindset. I mean, I was into punk rock. I was into like anti-establishment, anti-authority, yeah, you know? And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> when, you, when you dial that way back, um, that sort of, Postmodern moral relativistic free-for-all is not going to bring about happiness and peace and joy in the family, in the community, and certainly in heaven, God is a God of order and a God of authority. But his so-called authorities here, this would be the powers that be that are seeking to bring about the final deception. And, and go ahead, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Study for yourself, okay? And by the way, with everything that I'm sharing, always, I usually say that, and I forgot to say that. Uh, you know, we always want to be thinking for ourselves. As a teacher, <laughs> I always wanted to work against this kind of thing, right? And so even if you feel really excited about something and you want somebody to believe it, right, we would never want to enter into 
methods and systems of thought control like these guys are talking about using. We want to get people to draw their conclusions from the Bible as led by God, not because of com some compelling anything, right? And so absolutely study that issue for yourself regarding diets, injections, and injunctions. I always get that question. Um, and I don't know what to say about it because, well, I'm not a medical doctor and I, I won't comment on, uh, on, on vaccines. Although I will say this, we have seen a alarming increase in the uh, frequency and intensity of the early schedule for vaccines that has led many people to question and start exploring this. And I know this is a hugely controversial issue and so I'm not going to settle it, but I do want to throw that out there that I think we should all feel that we have permission from the Lord to explore even things that are outside of the mainstream to seek what is his will, okay? Because if we just go along with everything that we are told and do it the way that even the medical industry or whoever, I mean, have they ever been wrong in the past? Oh, absolutely, right? Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to leave that one alone for now, but my main message right there is study, study, ask the Lord, ask good godly counsel from a number of people regarding that issue of injections. Now, by the way, you should also know what's in them. I, I'm, I, I'm shocked by, and I didn't even plan to get in, but what, since you brought that up, I'm shocked by how many people eat things and inject things into their bodies and their children's bodies without knowing what the what they're do what it is that they're putting in their bodies, right? And so study that out. You know, don't ever just do it because somebody's advice and and they're credible and they're you know a, a, an MD. You know, I, I love I love doctors. I mean, they're they're such important people, but you know they're not infallible, right? And so we want to we want to pursue truth for ourselves on that. Now, after I'm done with this. I want, I want, we, we may have a minute. I want um, any comments on that topic that if I didn't get the balance right and if, if you know, you know, I, I want to open that up for a, for, a, for a couple of minutes of just, hey, you know, let's think through that a little more deeply because that quote does kind of open a can of worms. I should probably just remove that quote if I'm not going to get into it, right? <laughs> but anyway, diet, we know diet. I mean, health message is super clear, right? We don't want to be putting anything in our bodies that is not, uh, you know, going to be helping our health, okay? So diet, injection, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs, beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Isn't that amazing? They will, they, the children will not, the youth, the, the people coming up in society then as adults will not be able to question the powers that be or the establishment status quo that is being inculcated into the minds of the masses in this groupthink automaton world we live in today. So I want to close with this quote. Fundamentals of Christian education. What was the point of all of this? It sort of sets the stage to get us even more excited about true education tomorrow. But to conclude today, I beg of parents, says Fundamentals of a Christian Education, page 470. I beg of parents to place their children where they will not be bewitched by a false education. You see, the devil is the true one behind this. This is an occult terminology with witchcraft. There, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spell over the minds of the people as they come up being raised by screens and raised in desks by state officials who the parents are completely strangers to. This is a bewitching experience. This is an experience where if you read in child guidance, it says that parents 
who are derelict in their duty are handing their children over to Molech, are handing their children over to Satan, just like the Israelites handed over their children to Molech. And so when we say, I'm too busy, right? I mean, boy, I want to launch into a parenting seminar right now. And I've got, I've got a session, actually. If you came in thinking you were going to hear about media, that's in the um, tomorrow at 9.30 in the commons. Tomorrow, Monday at 9.30 in the commons. I'll talk a little bit about media. But um, when, when we outsource our parenting to worldly schools and, and the media, um, we're handing our children over to Satan like the Israelites handed them over, over to Molech. That's a really, 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 really big deal, okay? And it says, I beg of parents to place their children where they will not be bewitched by a false education. Their only safety is in learning of Christ. He is the great central light of the world. All other lights, all other wisdom are foolishness. Can we say an amen to that? Can we gather together tomorrow again and see how do we receive from the great central light of the world? I just gave you like a one-hour summary of three hours of history on worldly schooling. ABC has the whole series called Schooled. It's a two-disc set. You can view that, share that. Very same information you've heard here, plus another 50% more. Right? You know, another D DVD version of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But tomorrow, we're going to get into the good news. And I've got a series on that if you pick that up at the ABC. It's called Undoctrinated. Because the worldly system is indoctrinating our children. And it's time for us to completely divorce ourselves from letting the devil raise our children. Let us not be indoctrinated by that. Let us be undoctrinated from that and step into true, true, godly methods of child-rearing, parenting, true education. And that one is available also. It's four DVDs up there. They've got a discount at the ABC for, for the, the week as well. But tomorrow, we're going to see how we find safety in learning of Christ as the great central light of the world. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for warnings. We thank you for the pen of inspiration that has drawn us back to the Bible and the, the, the reminder that we are your image bearers, which means that you're our creator and God and authority, and we surrender and submit our will unto your divine will that we might choose your ways. And we thank you also for reminding us that we have individuality, and that we have gifts and unique abilities, and that each child has creativity and something to offer in this last day's cause. We know that there's an attack upon them. We want to not only escape the clutches of the enemy, but walk into something much more beautiful, the true light of Jesus Christ. May we contemplate him and dwell upon him today and draw our children unto him. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.